Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark's 14th chapter. We are fast approaching the end of our study of the Gospel of Mark. And I must tell you that I am both excited to see how this climaxes. And the more we work through the last hours of Jesus' life, I'm traumatized by the realities of what our Savior endured. We're going to finish up this 14th chapter today and then just a chapter and a half until we're done. I've entitled this sermon, The Best of Men Are Men at Best. The best of men are men at best. Peter's denials of Jesus. Let me read beginning in verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, Neither do I know nor understand, know him or know what you're talking about. And he went out to the porch, the entryway. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear I do not know this man you are talking about immediately a rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him before a rooster crows twice you will deny me three times And he began to weep. One of the most complicated men in the history of the English Reformation, which is a particular interest of my own curiosity and study, was a man named Thomas Cranmer. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was burned at the stake by Bloody Mary on the 21st of March, 1556. A little background, Thomas Cranmer had served in the Privy Council and he had served as a personal advisor to Henry VIII and had been very influential in bringing the Protestant Reformation to England. But in the process, he actually advised Henry to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Why? She was a Catholic and unwilling to receive the gospel and the theology of the Protestant Reformation and he divorced her and married Anne Boleyn. Following the birth of Mary's half-sister, Elizabeth, who was born to Anne Boleyn, the future Elizabeth I, 
In September of 1533, uh, an act of parliament declared, by the way, that 1553 rather, that Catherine's 17-year-old daughter, Mary, was illegitimate and removed her from succession to the throne, even though she would be reinstated a few years later by the third act of succession by Henry's will. Mary was denied access to her mother in exile who had been sent away by Henry to live away from the court, and she never saw her mother again. Mary was exiled, alone, away from her mother and family, and never forgot what Thomas Cranmer had done to come between her and her mother and also between her and the throne. Cranmer served... Henry until he died and also Edward VI the boy king who reigned for six years afterwards and then Lady Jane Grey who was the nine day queen who was just before Mary's reclamation of the throne Mary overthrew Jane and became England's first queen by succession not by marriage she immediately upon coming to the throne came after Thomas Cranmer she put him in prison And she told him one simple thing. If you will renounce the biblical gospel and the Protestant theology that you've taught and influenced on on the, the minds of England, then you can go free. He was a mortal man. He was a weak man. And in his weakness and in fear for his life, Thomas Cranmer signed a recantation, a denial of the Protestant biblical gospel and re-engaged Catholicism. All was well, right? He just saved his life. Except that Mary wanted to make a mockery of him and said, thanks for coming back to the the Catholic side, but I'm going to burn you at the stake anyway. J.C. Ryle writes, Thomas Cranmer fell. He put his hand to paper in which he repudiated and renounced the principles of the Reformation for which he had labored so long. In a moment of weakness, Thomas Cranmer, out of fear, wanting to save his life, pulled back from his faithfulness to Christ, pulled back from his faithfulness to good theology, And then Ryle, about Thomas Cranmer, writes those famous words. It stands forth as an everlasting proof that the best of men are only men at best. No truer words could be spoken of the Apostle Peter. The best of men are only men at best. He was one of the best men to ever walk this planet, but he was only a man. Now, the passage before us chronicles his weakness, his humanity, his denials of Jesus. In fact, it's one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. Most unbelievers know something about Peter's denying of Jesus. I think you all know we've been studying Peter for quite some time as we've followed Mark's pen along the life of the Lord. Peter was a fisherman by trade. He was called by the Lord 
from the Sea of Galilee, that lake where he was a fisherman with his brother Andrew, and told, come with me and I will make you a fisher of men. We studied the fact that Peter was married, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, 5 says, do we not all have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter? Peter, actually think about this. Who can say this? Peter walked on water for a minute. He walked on water to the Lord. He was the one who confessed that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God up in Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus said, no truer words, no better words have ever been spoken by a human. Because of that, Jesus nicknamed him Petros, the rock, Cephas, because of the profoundness of his theology and his confession that Christ was the Messiah, Jesus was the Messiah. Peter was a part of the inner circle of Jesus. Jesus had three particular men he spent the most time with who saw most of his miracles up close and personal. James and John were the other two. He had demonstrated his power over death with Peter behind closed doors when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus revealed his his true identity. He saw Moses and Elijah. He heard the voice of God the Father. He was in the inner part of the garden when Jesus was praying to the point of sweating great drops of blood. Peter was one of the most privileged men to have ever been born. No man ever had more evidence of the reality of Jesus, who he is, was, will be, his identity, his work, than Peter. But here, here in our passage, in a moment of weakness, we watch Peter, the rock, be reduced to a thrice-confirmed pile of gravel. Now, a few hours earlier, as we'll see in a moment, Peter was beaming with self-confidence. He was sure of himself. He was sure of his faith. He was sure of his commitment, his loyalty. But in the passage before us, his self-confidence literally evaporates into blithering denial of his friend and Lord Jesus Christ. To read this passage is to be almost sick at your stomach. Especially if you know how Peter's life ends, you just want to run in and say, no, Peter, no. But when we look carefully, if we'll look carefully, we can see in Peter a mirror for each of us. Let's walk through this together as we do. We're going to look at three progressions in a sad account of self-confidence. Three progressions in a sad account of self-confidence. This first step, this first phase in this progression 
is actually not in this passage. We have to go back before it in verses 27 to 31. Faithless confidence. Faithless confidence. Now, to find this, to understand the context of this, to put our minds around what's going on in Peter's heart, in his mind, from his lips, we have to go back a few hours earlier, the night before, at the end of the Last Supper, to pick up the context for our text today. Look back at verse 27. It's nearing the end of the Upper Room Discourse. They've had the the last Passover. They've celebrated the first communion ceremony. Jesus then predicts something and Peter argues with Jesus. We studied this a few weeks ago, but let's go back and grab it for our, for our context. Mark 14, 27. Jesus said to them, the, the disciples who were left, the 11 who were left at this point, Judas having departed, he looks at them and says, you will all fall away. Just think about that. You will all fall away. And then he says, actually, as a prophecy of Scripture, because it is written, and this is uh, from the book of Zechariah, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you up north, 100 miles north, to Galilee. Remember that. Remember that in a minute. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet not I. Now, all has a context. It's only ten others. Even though they will fall away, because I know you're talking to them, not me. Jesus said to him, not the group, he isolates Peter. Truly I say to you that this very night, said another way, in just a few hours... Before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me. Now that was bad enough. But listen to what he says. You will deny me three times. For most people, that would have reduced us to tears and self-reflection and speculation and questions and curiosities. Not Peter. Peter kept saying insistently, the Greek says, demanding with full-throated passion, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. Everybody picks up on Peter's bravery and look at the last phrase in verse 31. And they were all saying the same thing also. Us too. Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7. The sheep will be struck. All will abandon the shepherd. So Jesus, excuse me, Peter, think about this. Peter goes against prophetic scripture and the words of the incarnate God to say, I know what scripture says. I know what you say, God in flesh, but I say, I'm the exception. Not going to happen. I'm faithful. I'm loyal. I will never deny you. And then he adds, even if I have to die. Wow. And Jesus informs him in verse 30, Peter, Peter, slow down. Before this night is over, this would have been late on Thursday night, early in the wee hours of Friday morning, before the dark was was finished, this very evening, before the sunrise, 
you will deny me not just once and not just twice, three times you will deny me. And Peter argues back and says, no, I won't. Even under the threat of death. Stunning self-confidence, isn't it? Stunning self-confidence. But this confidence is not born of faith and loyalty. It was faithless confidence, probably born out of sentimentality, probably out of wanting to impress the Lord. We don't know everything that was going on in Peter's heart, but it wasn't true confidence. It was self-confidence. His confidence was in his own ability, not in Jesus. And he thought, my own willpower can withstand the threats of death. That's the context. That's his faithless confidence that will be confirmed in a moment as being faithless. Which brings us to our text. The second progression in this sad account of self-confidence is cowardly denial. Cowardly denial. Verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard. Okay, let's stop and orient ourselves from last week. Remember that Jesus was arrested. He was taken to the kind of the godfather of the high priests, um, uh, uh, Annas' house, and it was a very quick trial. He couldn't find anything to be uh, specific about, to be worthy of death. So he bumps him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, where he's tried and been accused of blasphemy. While that trial is going on, another trial is happening downstairs. How do we know that Jesus' trial was upstairs? Because it moves the camera from looking at Jesus' trial, and Mark says in verse 66, as Peter was where? Below. So as is the case with many Mediterranean homes during that time, it would have been a larger home and a, a rich, a wealthy home because it was Caiaphas' home, a Roman villa. It was an atrium, a square atrium courtyard enclosed by two-story buildings all around it. Peter was down below in the square, in the courtyard. Jesus is upstairs, no windows, all open, where Peter could see and hear exactly what was going on. And one of the servant girls, first of all, aren't you encouraged that at least Peter's around? We know John is upstairs with Jesus, he being a friend of the high priest, John tells us he was allowed in, he will invite Peter up later, probably saved his life, frankly. Peter's at least there. He ran, but he didn't run far. One of the servant girls, John 18, 16, tells us it was the girl who was keeping watch at the door. Not anyone could just walk into the high priest's house. This was an unusual night. All the men who had arrested Jesus, we'll see in a minute, were, were coming into that. They had brought him up. Jesus had gone upstairs to, for the trial. They had stayed down below in the courtyard. The girl who was keeping the door, almost saying, you can come in, you can come in, no, you can't. She was a servant of the high priest. She came. Verse 67, And seeing Peter warming himself by the fire, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. 
Evenings in March or April, I've been there during this time in, in Jerusalem, can be chilly, very chilly. They can get down into the, into the low 30s sometimes at night. There's even been snow before in this time. This particular night was cool enough that a fire was built in the courtyard for warmth. You can see these people just like we would be at a campsite all coming around the fire and warming themselves. Peter, obviously being chilled, comes by the fire where others are warming themselves and tries to blend in and warm up. But the unthinkable happens. He's recognized. You can see the flickering of the light that would have splashed on the faces of those with their hands extended to warm themselves by the fire. And he's recognized by this slave girl. How was he recognized? Well, remember, Peter had been with Jesus all week on the Temple Mount. No doubt thousands of people had seen Jesus and thousands of people had seen the men who were standing beside Jesus, one of them being Peter. And we know for a fact that the disciples had argued all week and the previous week on who was the greatest and who was the closest to Jesus, who was the first in the kingdom. So it's not a stretch of the imagination to say when Jesus was teaching, you could see Peter probably getting kind of close. I'm with him. And this girl recognizes him. However, his being recognized was a shock to Peter. He was trying to stay incognito, unrecognized. He had abandoned Jesus not very long before this moment in the garden. And no doubt, everyone around that fire, by the way, knew who was upstairs and probably were a part of the, the posse that came to arrest the Lord. Those who had escorted him to Caiaphas' house. Now Peter is identified as an accomplice to the prisoner upstairs. Very interesting. Jesus is identified by the girl as a man from Nazareth. Now that's important. Remember, that's 100 miles north of where they're standing in Jerusalem. Nazareth was a suburb of the bigger county, uh, the area called Galilee. 100 miles north, as I said. And similar to the way that we have different accents from, you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I grew up, and, and uh, upstate New York, there's different uh, dialects, different accents, and if you talk to someone from different parts of the country, you can tell pretty quickly what part of the country they're from. That happened here. Jesus is from Nazareth, the Nazarene, from Galilee. He and Peter would have spoken with a different dialect that was easily recognized, that will be important as the discussion with the servant girl continues in a moment. Verse 68. But Peter denied it. Denial number one. He denied that he was with the Nazarene. Now notice what Peter says. I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out to the porch. The original Greek here is emphatic. Peter goes to great lengths to deny Jesus. Literally, I neither know him nor have any idea what you mean or what you're talking about. Who? Which is absurd. Everyone in that courtyard knew the ruckus, knew what was happening upstairs, knew who was there. 
And, and Peter says, who are you talking about? Mark actually uses two different Greek verbs for the word know to make his point. I neither know nor know. I don't understand theoretically. I don't understand practically. I don't know who you're talking about. And if I did, I don't even know that guy. Total denial in theory and in practice. But look at the last phrase in verse 68. He's gripped with fear. He's obviously exposed. He's been caught. And he went out to the porch. Literally the entryway. The door. But this will not prove to be far enough away from Jesus and his persecutors. He can't get rid of this servant girl. (laughs) He moves from the inner circle in the fire. I'm just going to slip away and he goes out by the door. Verse 69. The servant girl saw him. How do we know it's the same servant girl? And began once more to say to the bystanders, now she's expanded out from talking to Peter to talking to everyone who was around, the people standing by the fire, the people standing by the door, anyone who could have heard. It was probably only about 20 yards long, so anyone could have heard her, and I'm sure she was a a passionate gal at this point. She begins to say to the bystanders, to everyone who will listen to her, now she's not talking to Peter, she's talking to them. She looks at the crowd and says, this is one of them. Them. Obviously a group they identified as ones who knew the Lord, part of his band, a part of his disciples. She talks of Peter as one of them and changes her address from Peter to the group. And for the second time, Peter denies he is in any way associated with Jesus. He denied it again. Now, I I do want to have a little footnote here because when you put John and Luke and Mark's account and Matthew's account together and and you put them in a blender, you line them up in a a harmony, you'll you'll see that Peter denied Jesus explicitly at least four times. And in those four times, within those times, he denied him multiple times. The Greek word indicates he kept on saying, no, I don't know him. So when Peter says, you'll deny me three times, he was being gracious. He would deny him at least three times. The second interaction has the volume turned up. Others are involved. And verse 70 informs us that the accusation against Peter spreads from the girl to the crowd. After a little while, then the bystanders... Not just the girl, but the bystanders were again saying to Peter... Surely you are one of them. For you are a Galilean too. How would they have known that? Because of how he talked. His accent. 
So now this is a swelling kind of mob mentality. This group of people were already stirred up to be a, a mob anyway. A whole posse, over 600 people had gone to, to, to arrest Jesus. We don't know how many of them, but you can be assured a large crowd was now in that courtyard waiting to hear what would happen to Jesus. How is Peter going to get out of this one? How can he convince? Think about this. Put, put yourself in his, in his sandals for just a second. How can he get out of this? Because the girl is spread to the crowd, and crowd by the fire, now the crowd by the door. Everyone's kind of coming around him. They're, they're swarming around Peter. They're all saying to him multiple times now, you are one of them. You sound like one. I saw you with him. How can he get out of this? This is, this is unbelievable. Jesus, the most virtuous man anyone had ever been in the same presence with. Kind, gentle, godly, holy. A man without sin. Think about that. And so Peter, in the spur of the moment, concocts concocts a plan that's difficult to even read. He began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. He won't even use Jesus' name. I don't know who this man is. And to prove that he was of a different character than Jesus, he begins to use foul language. And when it says curse there, that means literally taking God's name in vain. Peter launched an extended denial. Again, the, the Greek language indicates he went on an extended tirade about not knowing him using foul language and actually using God's name to curse. The people are hearing his northern accent, his Galilean dialect, and for the third time, adamantly and passionately, Peter denies Jesus. And he demonstrates that he's not even of the same character as Jesus by showing, by his language, speaking in a way that Jesus would have never spoken. See, I'm a pagan too. Now, there was a problem, and John gives us a little footnote in this problem. There was no way Peter was going to get out of this one. You know why? In John 18, verses 26 and 27, John tells us that one of the men who was standing there arguing with Peter had unique credibility. Why? Because he was a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off. Brother, cousin, don't try to deny it. You cut my cousin's ear off. Wow. Emphatic proof that Peter was 
not only with Jesus in the garden, but an ardent defender of Jesus in the garden. His cowardice has now been exposed. He has now publicly denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times and multiple times in those three categories of denial. Arguing. No, I don't know him. Cowardly denial. Can we just push pause for a moment? How many of us have had a moment that we can point back to in our lives where we had an opportunity to say something for the Lord and we didn't? Or maybe even worse, we did something to prove to others that we weren't as holy as our Lord? I I don't think we sit here in 2020 looking at Peter and saying, "I, I can't in any way identify with that. I think we all at some level, in some way, at some point in our lives can identify with his fear and his denial. Which leads to verse 72. The third in this progression in a sad account of self-confidence, broken contrition. Broken contrition. Mark's favorite workhorse word, immediately, Text began with immediately, now immediately, just then, at the opportune time, in God's perfect providence. A rooster crows, just as predicted, not a first, but a second time, just as Jesus said. Roosters and hens were kept for eating and for eggs, obviously but they weren't always in neat little pens. Some of them roamed around the streets. Even to this day in the Middle East, they do that. This one was close enough to above the arguing, it could be heard. When does a rooster crow? I grew up in Tennessee. I can tell you when a rooster crows. When it starts becoming light. And if you want to sleep much beyond that, good luck if it's close. A rooster crows a second time. (laughs) And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he begins to weep. Jesus' prediction with Peter was that his denials would happen before the rooster crows, or in other words, by, by sunrise. This gives us an orientation point. Remember, Jesus will be on the cross by 9 o'clock in about two and a half, three hours. Not only had Peter heard the Lord back in verse 31, he had actually argued with Jesus that such denial would never take place in the first place. And the sound of the rooster brought back the reality of the Lord's words which were not in his mind during the denials but were in his mind with the alarm clock of the rooster. A crushing moment of realization overwhelms Peter. His only reflex 
is to sob, is to weep. Luke adds a little color here because at this moment, Jesus had been escorted probably down into the courtyard or over by the window. We don't know exactly where he was in reference to Peter. We do know that he and Peter exchanged a look. The rooster rooster crows. Peter realizes what he's done. He begins to sob. Luke 22, 61 says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, probably at the sound of the rooster itself. The the Lord turned and looked at Peter. What a look that must have been. Only Luke, Luke records that. An intense, fixed look. They exchange eye contact. They don't talk. They don't discuss anything. Nothing had to be said. Let's back up from this scene for a moment. Mark is writing to the persecuted believers in Rome that they may be encouraged to remain faithful in the scene of Peter's denials would have become for them and is for us a lasting lesson that not even the best, most faithful Christian is immune to momentary denials. But an equal lesson is this. No believer is beyond the promise of God's grace and forgiveness. Mark sets this up, and, and, and all the gospel writers do, as an obvious comparison that we should make between Judas's denial and, and Peter's denial. Judas's denial was permanent. He never repented. He never came to his senses where he came back and said, I was wrong. Jesus is the Lord. He denied Jesus, sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, and his guilty conscience would lead him to hang himself. But Peter's guilt, Peter's shattered conscience led him to a very different response. Back to Thomas Cranmer for a moment. The stalwart of the Reformation denied the gospel, embraced what we call the real presence in the, the Catholic Eucharist, that Christ is re-crucified in the moment of, of Mass. Denied Jesus, denied the gospel. But cruel Mary Tudor, who would come to be known as Bloody Mary, would not accept his recantation and sentenced him to be burned alive anyway. They put all the elements for the fire in a ditch just outside of St. Mary's Cathedral. And just before Cranmer was taken out to that ditch, tied to a stake to be burned alive, they said, we want to make you an example. So they built a scaffold in St. Mary's, and, uh, which is the cathedral, just a few yards from the ditch where they would burn him. And they built a scaffold, and in order to get it high enough, they actually had to carve into one of the pillars there to build it. I, I've seen this chunk out of the, the pillar there. I've, I've, I've touched it in appreciation. 
They put him up on the scaffolding, expecting that he would say, Mary's right, and beg for his life, asking for mercy and recommit himself to the Catholic Church. Instead, he recanted his recantation. He denied his denial. He turned his back on that document that turned its back on the gospel. Here's what he said. And now I come to the great thing which so much troubleth my conscience more than anything I ever did or said my whole life. Remember, there's a whole crowd watching him. And that is setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth which I have here renounced and refused as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart I might save my life for. And that all these bills and papers which I've written or signed with my hand in my degradation wherein I have written many such things untrue and it's incredible for as much as my hand offended his hand signed that recantation writing contrary to my heart my hand shall be punished therefore when I come to the fire it shall be burned first this enraged the crowd. They drug him out. They pulled him off the scaffolding. They took him to the ditch. They bound him to the stake. And listen to J.C. Ryle's account of what happened next. Then came Cranmer's time of triumph. With a light heart and a clear conscience, he cheerfully allowed himself to be hurried to the stake amidst the frenzied outcries of his disappointed enemies. Boldly and undauntedly. He stood up at the stake while the flames curled all around him steadily holding out his right hand in the fire and saying with reference to his having signed a recantation, this unworthy right hand and steadily holding it up, holding up his left towards heaven. And he said his right hand was burnt off to a nub before the flame took the rest of him away. Now what I find interesting is in finishing up writing about Thomas Cramer, J.C. Ryle says this, like Peter, Cranmer fell, but like Peter, he rose again. What's he talking about? What is Ryle speaking about? We don't see the end of Peter in this sobbing, blithering mess. It's not the end. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples several times. One of those appearances, as he predicted, I'll meet you, I'll go ahead to you, of you in Galilee, 100 miles north. They went back up north, probably out of fear for their lives. And Peter goes back to what? Fishing. That's what he knew. Jesus, there's a story that's wonderful of giving them a load of fish. He prepares a fish breakfast for them. They come to the shore and he talks to Peter. 
Just listen. Don't even turn there. Just listen to John chapter 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of the disciples were together. Simon said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we also will come with you. And they went out and they got in the boat that night and they caught nothing. When the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, little ones, do not, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch of fish. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Those nets were massively overloaded. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! So when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, down to just the bare essentials so that he could be not hindered by his cloak, threw himself into the lake, but the other disciples came in the boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the full net of fish. So when they got out to the land, they saw charcoal fire had already been laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring me some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew out the net out, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn, unusual. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And the fishes likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Remember the last interaction they had? The rooster crows. They exchange a look. Simon, why did you deny me? No. That's not what he says. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then tend my lambs. Restoration. Peter denied the Lord, but the Lord never denied Peter. So what do we do with this? How, how do we walk away from this passage? Can I give you three things to tuck in your heart? First of all, Jesus remains faithful when we are faithless. Jesus remains faithful even though we have momentary lapses and weakness. He remains faithful when we are faithless. I think of Luke 21, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, which he was after him that night of the denials. But Jesus says, I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail 
and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew he would fail. He prophesied he would fail. He knew he would deny him three times. He knew he would be on the run, running a hundred miles away. But he also knew that once he was restored, he would be a pastor and a preacher and ultimately would die for the Lord Jesus. A second takeaway is momentary weak faith is different than permanent denial. Momentary weak faith is different than permanent denial. Look, we've all had moments of weakness, but that's different than turning away and walking away from the Lord. Which brings us, thirdly, to say this. While there is life and breath, there is opportunity to return to God. While there is life and breath, there is opportunity to return, or maybe for the first time, to turn to God. Can I just invite you to know the Lord Jesus Christ? To receive him as your Lord, your master, your maker, your friend, the forgiver of your sins who paid for our sins through his death and gave us his righteousness by faith who was crucified and rose from the dead and says, come after me all who are heavy laden and burdened and I'll give you rest. The best of men are indeed men at best but hallelujah we have a savior who knows our frailty knows our cowardice knows our weaknesses and loves us nonetheless what a savior what a friend we have in Jesus